in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. I'll jump right into a story, and then we'll, uh, we'll address it a bit. About 540 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and about 900 miles south of Jerusalem, there was a tribe called the Quraysh. They were the keepers of the cube, the Kaaba. It was a large black cube the size of an office building, uh, like something you would maybe see in a science fiction movie, but it's not science fiction. It's a black cube about 40 feet high and 40 feet wide. And inside the cube was a sacred black stone. And there's all sorts of speculation about what this stone is made out of. Is it a meteorite? Is it, uh, I don't know geology, a gate? Uh, Is it uh, some kind of glass? Nobody really knows, and nobody is allowed to scientifically test it because it's the sacred stone, so no one wants scientists poking around with it. So it's a sacred stone, and just as in the Greek temple of Artemis, it was built around a, that the Greek temple was built around this black meteorite stone that came from space, thought to have come from the gods. And so, in the same way, in Arabia, so is this Kaaba, this cube. And these different tribes all around the area, all believed different things, but once a year, they would all come together and honor this cube, this this stone housed by this big black science fiction-looking cube. Now, the cube housed a a number of other things, from pagan idols to paintings of Abraham to Mary to Jesus, Uh, And there were all kinds of pagan tribes, uh, Jewish tribes, and then sort of pseudo-Christian groups. Now, we don't want to think of them like Christianity, like uh, Orthodox, creedal Christianity, like our background comes from. Uh, Think of it more like different heterodox or heretical Christian groups were all in this area. Uh, But these pagan tribes would all come together every year and honor this meteorite stone inside the cube. And even though they'd all be fighting amongst each other, once a year they'd all come together and march around this cube a certain number of times, and all the fighting would stop and they would be united. And there was this sense, how powerful could all of these various Arab tribes be if they were to always be united around this cube, like on that one day a year? Now in that one tribe, that tribe of Quraysh, or Quraysh, uh, there was a young orphan. And now in that city, to be anything in society was to be a merchant. This is the middle of Arabia, so you can't really farm, you can't really uh, do much in order to accumulate any kind of wealth except for trading. So just across the Red Sea, which is not too far across, was all of the mineral and material wealth of sub-Saharan Africa. And it's really hard to get, it's almost impossible to get all that material wealth through the Saharan desert. Uh, And so it was easier to go across the Red Sea into Arabia and then up to all of the major empires around the Mediterranean world. And so this Quraysh tribe made their living on trading between sub-Saharan Africa, so I guess from your angle, sub-Saharan Africa, across the Red Sea, into Arabia, and then up to the Mediterranean wealthy kingdoms. And that was their their whole way of making money was being merchants between these two areas. So, uh, for many of these boys in this Quraysh village, they traveled far and wide, they knew a a number of languages, and they understood the gods, the religions, the political and uh, economic cultures around them. And this orphan that was in this group, uh, this young boy was an orphan, he had no resources, but he was wise, and he was well-spoken, and he started to make a bit of a name for himself. And there was a wealthy widow that recognized his ability. 
And so she, being a woman in that society, couldn't really trade and kind of have the, the freedom of a man. So she employed this orphan who is now kind of grown up. I think he was an older teenager. She employed him to be a merchant on behalf of her wealth. So just like today, you'll often have an investor that will attach themselves to a wealthy family and then they'll do all of the investing and sort of investments for a family. Uh, in the same way, this boy, this young man, became a merchant who was a kind of traveling salesman on behalf of this wealthy widow. And he was seen as good and fair and people liked him. Now, as he grew older, he started to have visions. So he looked around his Arabian Peninsula and he saw how silly all of this interfaith tribal conflict was. All of these ridiculous polytheistic religions, tribes, uh, differing and, and sort of uh, arguing heretical sects of Christianity that couldn't agree with each other. Uh, again, the influence of the cube was strong in him. He wanted to see unity in Arabia, and he didn't. And at that time, there was an incredible vacuum of leadership, both religious and political. There were no strong leaders really leading anything. So when he was around 40, he began going outside the city to pray, and this would change the course of the world forever. Many of you have probably guessed, or you've read the email, uh, that this man is who we know as Muhammad, and the city was Mecca. So he would go outside of Mecca and pray in this cave. And while he was doing so, uh, he, he claimed that the angel Gabriel, or Jibrail in Arabic, appeared to him and began to speak the words of God, or Allah. And for a while, he kept these revealed words secret, only telling those who he loved, just a few close, trusted loved ones. Uh, but then eventually, uh, according to scholars, he sort of went public with this message, and it wasn't received very kindly. Uh, I showed a textbook up here a few weeks ago. I'm taking some of this from the same book by Farhadian today, just to make sure we get all of the all of the beliefs down. So he had three main messages that he first started proclaiming when he went public, and it wasn't received very kindly. The first was that God is one, which is a direct attack on a lot of the polytheistic tribes in the region. God is one, not many. And then he said there would be a judgment day and that there was a such thing as eternal life. So there's like a heaven and a hell. And so a lot of traders, a lot of the wealthy, important people in that society took it very hard because they did not believe in a judgment day. They did not believe in a heaven or hell, these pre-Islamic uh, Arabic religions. And they believed that God was many. So in a sense, they could do whatever they wanted and there was no judgment day. And all of a sudden, so if you've been extorting, if you have been cheating the poor, if you have been acting poorly as a merchant, as a wealthy, you know, think of like a millionaire, billionaire sort of merchant, not like a salesman on the corner merchant. Uh, there's judgment coming for you. Uh, he talked about justice for the weak, the poor. Remember, he grew up as an orphan. He was taken in by an uncle, and so he thought very highly of taking care of orphans. Uh, but mostly, the idea was that God is one, and that he, Muhammad, was the ultimate or final prophet, and that all should submit to God or Allah. And the word for submit, to submit to Allah, is Islam. And that's where we get the name Islam, it's the second largest religion in the world, and the actual name of it is submission. Now, that word has a really poor connotation today, uh, somewhat understandably, but the idea of submission in Islam isn't like submit. It's more like uh, a full willful, obe willful obedience to God. So anyway, this uh, small band of followers of Islam faced opposition that was so fierce that they had to relocate to another town, right? They were being persecuted. Uh, there were death threats on them daily, 
So they relocated to another town about 300 miles away, and there were only about 50 of them, right? So there's countless uh, cults and sects like this over time that have amassed 50 people, and then the persecution gets so bad that they have to go somewhere else. What's interesting is what separates this group from all of the countless hundreds of thousands of groups that have been like this in history. This one succeeded where others did not, and they became the religion of Islam. So when they arrived at this new town, which would eventually become Medina by today's standards, it wasn't called that then, they didn't face hostility but warmth. So there were Jews, there were these sort of heterodox, heretical Christian groups, and then there were also polytheistic groups, and all of these groups were constantly bickering amongst each other. And they recognized that this group's leader, Muhammad, was kind of wise. He was like a Moses figure who was uh, wise and just. And they said, hey, you know all of our languages. You spent your life trading. You know all of our beliefs. You're wise in the ways of the world. Why don't you act as a kind of judge or mediator in between all of these constantly bickering groups and tribes? And so he started acting as a judge and a kind of mediator. And he apparently did a very good job because within just a few years, uh, everyone not only claimed to, to, or not only began to follow him as a wise judge, but also as like, oh, you hear these messages in the wilderness? We want to hear what that is. So he was saying that he was given these words from the angel Gabriel, and he said that he was called to recite them. Right? The angel Gabriel says, proclaim, recite these words. And that word is, that's where the word Quran comes from, is to recite the things that God was telling him. So this group in Medina believed him, They believed his words, the recitation, and they became devoted followers. And they submitted to the God that Muhammad was speaking of and called themselves followers of Islam. Uh, It was kind of radical because you had these groups for thousands of years that were all associating with their local tribes. And all of a sudden, in the space of just a few years, they just completely forgot their former identity and all united under this idea of followers of Islam. So uh, what were the teachings, right? What were they being taught? What did they submit to? And now, and I say this not uh, as a slam, but actually as a, a part of their success is that Islam is actually extremely basic. Like it's very foundational and it's not, it's not confusing. Uh, and if you look at Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, a number of world religions can be really, you can get into the weeds really quick, right? And there's a, there's a simplicity. You can teach children the message of Christianity. They can understand it. Um, but Islam is very foundational and simple in a way that the others are not. So this is the, the five major teachings. There are five pillars. Uh, one is the shahada. It's just, it's, it's in a sense how they convert. It's their first major belief that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his final prophet or messenger. Two, you guys will be familiar with this, that they pray, the devout Muslims will pray five times a day facing Mecca. Interestingly, they used to face Jerusalem in the beginning, uh, and then they ended up changing that to face Mecca, which is Muhammad's hometown. It's where this cube rests from before Islam uh, came on, on the scene. Um, if you ever see in movies or just in, in real life, you know, the people laying down these mats wherever they are and facing east and praying and sort of prostrating themselves to the ground. That's what that is, the five times a day prayer. The third is giving alms, giving to the poor, giving to charity. This is a core part of Muslim belief. Again, Muhammad raised as an orphan. He would not have ended up uh, a successful person if he was not shown a ton of mercy and, and help as, a, as an orphan. And so that's a core part of this faith. The fourth is fasting. Uh, you guys have heard of Ramadan. There's other fasts too. But this idea of fasting, abstaining from food, at least during the daylight hours, 
in order to draw nearer to God and to repent and sort of uh, achieve a kind of spiritual discipline. And then the fifth is the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca. Have you guys ever talked to a Muslim who's gone on the Hajj, who's flown to Mecca and done the seven, seven routes around the cube? Anyone? No. Um, it's a whole event. Every, it's the largest pilgrimage on earth today is the Hajj, because all Muslims, if they're physically and financially able, at some point in their life are supposed to make a pilgrimage to, this, to Mecca and to do this walk around this cube that actually predates Islam. So they try to walk around this cube seven times. They try to touch the black stone. There's this kind of unity, all the Arab and then even the whole world, the idea is uniting in peace under this stone, which is kind of strange, right? Here's this pagan pre-Islamic, clearly pagan ritual, and that's still part, it's a core part of Islam. So you might wonder, like, how in the world then does this group end up exploding and becoming such a success? So the story of how they went from 50 and persecuted uh, to becoming this major force in Medina, it makes some sense. Okay, if Muhammad is a really gifted judge and peacemaker, then maybe it makes sense that this group of 50 would grow to kind of dominating this whole town. But then how, even in the space of his lifetime, did they come to dominate all of the Arabian Peninsula and shortly after the entire, essentially, Middle Eastern world and North African world? And what happened is there was a power vacuum unlike we've maybe ever seen in that area in history. So listen to how fast this went. It was 622 AD when Muhammad and this, these 50 people went to Medina because they were persecuted. Everyone there started to follow close, like shortly after. And then it was only, let's see, eight years later that Muhammad and now 10,000 Medinans, so basically everyone in this city had converted, and then all of their soldiers, their men of, of warring age, went back to Mecca, the city that they were all kicked out of in the first place, and threatened to war against it. But Mecca, because they didn't have real leadership or soldiers or anything, just sort of gave up without a fight. Almost no one died. They just said, yeah, you can just come back in and, and take over. That was in 630 AD. And within only two years, the entire Arabian Peninsula, what we know as modern Saudi Arabia, had fallen in line. So now all of a sudden, in just the space of a, a decade, you go from 50 people to an entire massive slath of, of land. So it was a political and leadership vacuum, ripe to be swept up by anyone who had a kind of talent to lead, to judge, and to connect people who had been warring for a long time. So my generation, and maybe some of yours as well, a lot of yours, the millennials, we are defined more than anything by, at least geopolitically, we are defined by 9-11. So no matter how unbiased or how well-read you consider yourself about Islam, there is a certain something in the air uh, after 9-11. Uh, and when I have my students, I teach world religions, so that's why we're going a little bit more lecture mode today than sermon. Uh, when I have my students visit, one of, they have six choices to, to visit other religious gatherings, and they have to visit uh, two or three, depending on which section I'm teaching. And almost no one goes to a mosque. They'll go to a Jewish temple, they will go to a Hindu temple, or sorry, a Jewish synagogue, they'll go to a Hindu or Buddhist temple, they'll go to an Eastern Orthodox church, Almost no one goes to a mosque because of this something that's in the air, this sort of bias, this post-9-11 fear. But if you lived in another time period, you may feel uh, differently. Let me just give a quick aside here. We're doing two weeks on Islam because there's so much to cover. So this, today, we're spending a lot of time on the story and the background, 
and then we'll get into some Quranic verses. But next week will be will feel a little bit more like a sermon. This week is a little bit more of a of a teaching, so we know where we're coming from on Islam. So if you lived in another time period, the bias, that sort of vibe in the air, would be different. So uh, in the West, you probably grew up hearing about the glories of ancient Greece and Rome. And then after Rome fell, what do we have? What do they call it? Chris, you got it? What, after Rome fell, what's it? They call it the Dark Ages, right? You guys have heard this term, right? Uh, some people, you know, there's medieval Europe. They call it the Dark Ages. Um, but they were only the Dark Ages for Europe. The Muslim world, shortly after, you know, Muhammad was born, like maybe 150 years after the fall of Rome, for five, six, seven hundred years, it was the Muslim world that was the most advanced place on earth. And so we talk about the uh, Dark Ages. That's only the European Dark Ages, whereas medicine, science, civil engineering, scholarship, you name it, that was all being forwarded in the Muslim world. Uh, the reason we have a lot of the ancient scholarship we did, it was gone from Europe. None of those monks were holding on to it. It was the Muslim scholars in their libraries who preserved Plato and Aristotle and all of these great Greek philosophers. They were the ones who preserved it. And then it wasn't until much later during the Renaissance that the Europeans were like, please, Muslim scholars, can we have this Greek and Latin like, history back so we can read it again and figure it out? And it was the Islamic world that held on to that. Uh, there's a famous anecdote about a European king, I think during the Crusades, who went before Salah Adin, one of the great uh, Muslim rulers, and the king wanted to show off the wealth and the knowledge of Europe. He was a Frankish king, I think. And so he went before Salah Adin, and he said, I want to show you the knowledge and the wealth of Europe. So I'd like to show you my library. And Salah Adin was like, oh, that's, that's really nice. I mean, if I ever make it up to you know, France, then maybe I'll check the library out. And the king's like, well, no, what do you mean? I've got the library right here. And Salahuddin's like, what, you have your library here? He's like, well, yeah. And he, <laughs> he like brings out this like box of like 30 books. <laughs> and Salahuddin's like, oh, I see. You brought your, that's your whole library. So he's like, let me show you mine. And he brings him into this like Beauty and the Beast library, right? Where there's just like books all the way up the wall, hundreds of thousands of volumes, all copied by hand. This is well before the printing press. So that's what we're talking about. Europe was hundreds and hundreds of years behind the Islamic world for a long time. So if you were a Jew in that era, you would much rather live among Muslims than Christians. If you were a woman, it was often better for you in a Muslim kingdom. Say if you lived in the year 11 or 1200, it was often better for you in the Muslim world than the Christian world. Uh, the Muslims continued uh, the Roman like, bathing practices and hy hy like, hygiene. And because they did it, even though there's nothing obviously wrong with that in the Bible, because the Muslims bathed, the Christians thought bathing must be sinful because, you know, the pagans used to bathe and now the Muslims bathe. So for hundreds of years in Europe, it was like a sign of righteousness, of like virtue signaling, sort of an ancient bumper sticker to have never bathed. And so there are a lot of nuns who would like declare before God that the only thing that they ever bathed on their body was their fingers before taking the host, before taking communion. So that's the difference. So, so we have a different vibe, right? A different feeling about the difference between the Christian world and the Muslim world. But it was not always that way. Uh, the Muslims were the leading people on earth for nearly a millennium. So, uh, like I said, the reputation of Islam has not always been what it is today. It's a different discussion for a different day, certainly not a sermon, but the question is, why is the character of Islam so different today? A lot of scholars think that it's because of when you had Genghis Khan and the Mongol raids take over most of Eurasia, 
uh, they just conquered group after group after group until they got to the Arab Muslim world. And the Muslims were the only people that were able to hold off Genghis Khan, essentially. But that in trying to do that, that it's, you, you, they had to, that, that sort of beautiful, open, scholarly tolerance just got decimated. Because when you're trying to hold yourself off from this tribe that's just like cutting off heads left and right, you kind of have to change your personality to be able to win in a war like that. And so there's this thought that that's, that really changed the character of Islam when they went up against the Mongol tribes. Anyway, uh, there's a kind of two-sidedness when you read the Quran and when you read uh, in Islam. And I don't mean that uh, too pejoratively, but you, you get confused because you see two different attitudes coming through time and time again. And it's kind of surprising because it, in one sense, it seems very open and tolerant. Like, wow, I could see how a Muslim place would be a really nice place to live. And then it changes uh, kind of on a dime. So let me read you some Quranic verses here in our Jesus Among the World Religions series. So uh, let me read this from you from, uh, from the beginning of the Quran, chapter 2. The truly good are those who believe in God and the last day in the angels, the scripture, the prophets, who give away some of their wealth, however much they cherish it, to their relatives, to orphans, the needy, travelers and beggars, and to liberate those in bondage, those who keep up the prayer and pay the prescribed alms, who keep pledges whenever they make them, who are steadfast in misfortune, adversity, and times of danger. These are the ones who are true, and it is they who are aware of God. And then another verse here. Uh, For the Muslim believers, the Jews, the Sabians, which is a tribe, uh, and the Christians, those who believe in God and the last day and do good deeds, there is no fear. They will not grieve. So if you read this out loud, even a pretty secular environment would be really comfortable with this. Like, oh yeah, as long as people are good people, give to the poor, maybe do some almsgiving, they'll be fine. There's There's no hard judgment day coming for them. They're all right. Jews, Christians, Sabians, whoever they are, they're all fine. There's no fear. They will not grieve on judgment day. So when you read stuff like this in the Quran, you think, wow, this is a really tolerant, sort of open religion. Uh, and then just a few verses later, just literally just a few verses later from one of these passages, it says this. Those who say God is the Messiah, son of Mary, have defied God. If anyone associates others with God, God will forbid him from the garden and hell will be his home. No one will help such evildoers. Those people who say that God is the third of three are defying the truth. There is only one God. If they persist in what they are saying, a painful punishment will afflict those of them who persist. Why do they not turn to God and ask his forgiveness when God is most forgiving, most merciful? The Messiah, son of Mary, was only a messenger. Other messengers had come and gone before him. So dozens of times you get this kind of flip where it's like, hey, Jews and Christians are just fine. But it's like, hey, watch out for those people who talk about threeness, you know, threeness and oneness. Well, you don't say three, the Trinity people, right? That's, the Quran doesn't quite have the right language, and it gets it wrong. You know, be careful for those who talk about God as being a third of three. That's not the real doctrine of the Trinity. God is not dividable. He's not, you don't have three persons that make up one whole God. You have three persons that are all fully God, right? But that's where that comes from. So you get these two uh, different messages. People from all tribes and tongues will be just fine as long as they do good. Jews and Christians and their scriptures are good. And then at other times, it's like, be careful. Don't join partners with God. If you say that Jesus or the Holy Spirit is equal to God, you're going to hell. Uh, those who talk of three or a trinity are going to hell. And so there's these kind of two halves. And the reason you get this is that the Quran was written in two stages. One was when there were 50 Muslims in Mecca 
and they were being persecuted. The other was when there were hundreds of thousands of them, and they were like the kings of the Arabian Peninsula. So imagine the sort of posture and the difference that you have if, you know, because we don't believe that these are inspired words, we believe they're largely Muhammad's, you know, and, and sort of however, that, however he came to draft these, these words, they were his. And so you, you have to posture yourself differently when you're one of 50 people among a very uh, religiously diverse environment and they're all coming after you. It helps to be sort of chill and tolerant and saying we can all get along and we're all Abrahamic and we're all brothers. And then all of a sudden you are the new king in town and nobody dares go against you. Well, now all of a sudden your message changes a bit, right? Careful to those who say this and this and who don't agree with Islam because you're going to hell and you're doing this and that. That's why you have this constant two-sidedness within the Quran. And, uh, you know, the Bible is roughly uh, chronological. Not perfectly, but roughly. It starts at the beginning, it ends kind of, you know, at the end. They're roughly in chronological order. The Quran is ordered very frustratingly in uh, the length of chapter. So the longest chapter is the first, shortest chapter is the last. Everyone in the middle just sort of falls in line, like a height, like you're all lining up for a photo by height. That's kind of how the Quran's chapters are ordered. So you go back and forth between a, a chapter that's like, we can all be friends, to like, no, you're all going to hell. And so it just like goes back and forth between these two different periods uh, when it was written. Um, and that's why Islam and the world can t- has tended to have such a different feeling over, over time, that you have many, even a vast majority, who, who prefer the more tolerant, uh, loving texts where we're all Abrahamic brothers and we're all sort of on a similar page, even if we have some differences and let's all just get along. Most Muslims, as you know, uh, fall more in line with that. And those are the teachings that they prefer. But then, of course, there are more of the hardliners who are like, no, that's wrong. Anyone who doesn't fall in line needs to be extinguished or submit. Um, so let's see, we don't have too much time, so let me move on to this. Quran, the Quran has a historicity problem when it comes to the person of Jesus. So the greatest bridge for dialogue, the greatest, greatest way to be able to dialogue with your Muslim friends or coworkers is the person of Jesus. But he's also the greatest impasse with a Muslim. So they actually share, let, hear this, Muslims share more with us on their belief in Jesus than any other world religion on the globe. Some scholars even say that theologically, not culturally, but theologically, Islam is the closest religion in the world to Christianity, even more so than Judaism. And I think they're right, not culturally. Culturally, Judaism or Mormonism even, even though theologically Mormonism is like miles away in space, uh, culturally Mormons feel somewhat familiar because, you know, they're an American religion. So they kind of feel familiar because they were sort of brought up in this sort of like American Protestantism, so we're familiar with them. Uh, But theologically, Islam is the closest religion to Christianity. Um, In the Quran, Jesus is recognized as a worker of miracles. He's recognized as a true prophet, that he was born of a virgin. And even get this, that he was what they call the Kalimat Allah, the word of God. That's what they say. Jesus is the word of God. And so that is your best way forward. If you have Muslim friends, Muslim colleagues, that is, that I'm telling you now, that is the place to start on Jesus being the word of God, right? And if Jesus died on a cross, well, can God's word die? So start there, right? If Jesus is the word of God, what does that mean? Um, but the issue of Jesus is this greatest impasse because they, did, they do not believe that Jesus died on a cross or that he rose again. 
So it says this in the Quran, probably the most cited passage on uh, Muslim-Christian relations. It says, uh, And because they, the Christians, disbelieved and uttered a terrible slander against Mary and said, We have killed the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God. And then it says, parentheses, They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, though it was made to appear like that to them. Those that disagreed about him are full of doubt, with no knowledge to follow, only supposition. They certainly did not kill him. God raised him up to himself. So I guess this isn't talking about the Christians. It's talking about the, the religious leaders at the time. So this is saying, hey, Jesus didn't actually go to a cross, just someone who appeared like him, or it just appeared like Jesus went to the cross. Um, and those who tell this story are all in disagreement, and they're full of doubt, and no one really knows anything. Um, the sad thing about this is that Muhammad is not making this up. So he's dead wrong about early Christianity, but the Christians that he knew were not representative of wider Christianity. The Christians that he knew were on these sort of weird, heretical, heterodox wavelengths. And so even though probably 90, 95% of the Christians around the world believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ones, the so-called Christians who lived near Muhammad believed all sorts of different things. And there were some non, sort of non-Orthodox Christians in the area. And one group, I forget their name, but one group believed that Jesus himself didn't go to the cross, that it was just someone who looked like him. And they have all these weird like Gnostic gospels from hundreds of years later that they quote uh, to back this up. And so they believe that Jesus didn't die, it was just somebody who looked like him, um, and that you know, they're all just an argument and no one really knows. And what's sad then is that Muhammad did not hear true Christianity. Right? When he's arguing against Christianity, he's not arguing against orthodox, true Christianity, but against these sort of heterodox, heretical groups that are all arguing amongst each other, and no one can even agree on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that is where Muhammad, even though he didn't have more evidence than that, that's where he is wrong, and that his view, the Quran, has a serious historicity problem. Because here's this is the interesting thing. We will never have, for any event in history, we'll never have video camera evidence, right? Because the video camera wasn't around. We will never have DNA evidence from before things could be preserved in DNA, right? And so there's certain things we can't have. So we can't actually watch Jesus die and rise again with our own eyes. But what we can absolutely prove is this, is that the early Christians who all knew Jesus and then saw him after he rose again, we can actually prove that they believed it, right? So we, can't, we can say it's historically reliable, it's historically likely, we can have faith that Jesus died and rose again, as we all do, or as many of us do, um, but we can absolutely prove historically that all of the early Christians did believe it, if that makes sense, right? So we can't prove the event, but we can prove that the early Christians did believe that. And that's not, Muhammad did not know that when he was reciting the Quran. So some of the strongest evidence for what early Christians believed is what's found in uh, the, to, to the Muslim, what is the inconvenience of Saul of Tarsus in his, write, in his writings, right? So Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul, died in about the year 60, 61, 62 AD. He had his head cut off by the Romans. Um, instead of being hung on a cross, he was a Roman citizen, so he had the grace of getting his head cut off, so it was just instant. Um, so we know that everything that he wrote was authored before his death. So within 30 years of the life or of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we know that Paul was funded and sent and partnered closely together with and was a benefactor and beneficiary of this long friendships with the apostles and all of the early churches around the Mediterranean. So if 
the Quran kind of makes this argument that Jesus and John the Baptist said one thing, but later Paul and all these disciples sort of twisted it and made other stuff up and kind of got it wrong. But if that had been so, if Jesus said one thing, but then Paul said something else, none of Jesus' disciples would be in line with Paul. But as we know, Paul and James and Peter and John and all of these guys co-labored for 30 years until their martyrdoms. They, didn't, they had almost no motivation to do so because they were just being persecuted and hunted at every turn. But we know that what Paul believed is also what the early Christians believed. Not only because Paul writes about it all over the place, but because Paul is actually citing the, New Test- or the early Christian belief. Uh, so in Paul, we have the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin, that the, there's a co-eternal nature, basically that Jesus and God are one, that they are the same. We know that Paul believed these things, and so did the other apostles, because of this 30-year close partnership where they're always sending and being sent from one another. They're sharing funds one way and then the other way. One, you know, like the, one church is raising money to send Paul, and then Paul is raising money to help out the churches in famine. We know there's a close partnership. And the strongest evidence is the fact that Paul isn't even claiming to be the first authority here. There are a number of times in Paul's letters where he is not just theologizing and preaching on his own, but he dives into quoting the New Testament or the early church liturgy. And so this is something that Muhammad didn't know, that there's a number of uh, points like 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, which we don't have time to go through, and Philippians 2, 6 through 11, when it talks about Jesus, you know, emptying himself, becoming like us, taking on flesh, uh, giving up the sort of, um, I forget the exact terminology, but giving up the equality with God, right, in order, to, in order to die for us and go ahead of us as a representative. I'm screwing up that language, but you can look it up in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Paul is not writing that. Paul is quoting that from early church songs. It's the church, people unnamed, people unknown. It might be Peter, it might be James, it might just be local worshipers. They are the ones inventing that scripture, so to speak. They're the ones singing that every week in the first years of the church. Because by the time Paul is citing it, he's sort of like doing this in the Greek, right? He's like doing like a quote mark as he's citing their liturgy back to them. None of the words are Paul's words. He never uses those words. He doesn't use that cadence at all. It's like Paul, 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 boom. And then he shifts into quoting something that's completely unlike his language. Uh, And there's a lot of other reasons to know that this is a song that he's quoting. And then he dives right back out of it into his normal language. So we know that Paul, not only did he believe this, but he's quoting the church back to itself to make a point. And the church is saying all of these things about Jesus being forever coexistent with God, uh, with God in the beginning, before creation, died on the cross, rose again for the salvation of sins. And that is the first, we call that the first Christian scripture, because it wasn't even written down, but we have it preserved in Paul, right? He's quoting it back to them, even though it was never written down before him. It's this kind of funny moment. You know, there's this other moment where Paul says that, hey, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. You guys have read this, right? Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And what's really cool is it doesn't actually say that in any of the Gospels. Paul just says that Jesus said it. Now, we believe he's right. It certainly fits with everything that Jesus said. It's one of those cool examples of the church having a teaching of Jesus that was broader than just the things that got written down. And then we have a a partial record of it in in that Paul quotes it back to the church. He's like, hey, remember when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive? And they're all like, yeah, I remember that. 
Whereas we're like, wait, it doesn't say that in the Gospels. Did he say it? He did. Uh, and in the same way, Paul quotes their own theology back to them. So uh, I wanted today to tell of this story of Islam and how it came about, but then also land on this. Next week, we'll get into more of the nitty-gritty of their beliefs. But I wanted to address this, that the main in that you have with a Muslim friend or colleague is in the person of Jesus, but it will also be your greatest impasse. Uh, and though you don't want to debate, you won't have much fruit there, but just know that the Quran, in its treatment of Jesus, it has a historicity problem that we know for a fact, though we can't prove with video camera evidence what happened, we certainly know that it's historically uh, reliable and we have faith, but we know for a fact that all of the early Christians did in fact believe that Jesus did die on the cross, not just one that looked like him, right? We have Thomas. Thomas is a great example of this. It wasn't just one who looked like Jesus. It was Jesus who died and rose again. We know what they believed. They went from these cowering, like fearful cowards up in the upper room to three or four days later, just turning the world upside down with no fear at all. They had to have seen something. They had to have known something to go from cowering in an upper room to standing boldly before the local governors and rulers who had just killed Jesus. And they're like, nope, this is true. This is what we're going to say. And the rulers are like, well, we're going to kill you too. And they're like, well, fine. This is true. This is what we're going to say. The early church liturgy, the hymns, the witness of the entire New Testament is clear. Jesus is Lord. He and the Father are one. He came to serve as a ransom for many. He truly died on the cross, and he defeated sin and death. He rose again, and they all saw it. Though we can't see it, they saw it. And instead of cowering and fear-mongering, they flipped on a dime, and then they turned the world upside down. God himself took on humanity, going before us as a high priest and walking the path that we were to walk. When we could not achieve the righteousness of God, he came alongside us and he went before us, achieving for humanity the perfection and righteousness that we could not. He offered the truest sacrifice for sin, and he defeated sin and death forever. Let me pray to close us, and then I invite you guys to come downstairs for refreshments afterward. We'll finish up the Islam uh, series next week. Father, we thank you uh, for your scripture, Lord, and we thank you for the brotherhood and the camaraderie that we can have sometimes with other faiths around the world. But we also pray for uh, knowledge and for wisdom and conviction and how to love our uh, Muslim brothers and sisters and how to engage in uh, meaningful and loving dialogue with them, but also how to beautifully and truthfully uh, persevere in the truth that as good as some of the teaching might be in their faith, that ultimately they get you wrong, that they have a, a historicity problem that we know for a fact what the early Christian community believed uh, and that the Quran is way off on that. So we pray for wisdom, we pray for open doors, and that you would allow us with Muslim friends, colleagues, and neighbors uh, to share your truth uh, lovingly uh, and winsomely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.